0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Hello once again to our Behind the Knife listeners. So we're excited to be back with you. This is our fourth episode coming from the Leahy colorectal team. Uh, So this episode, we're going to be grappling with the challenge of how to manage biologics for surgical resection in patients with Crohn's disease. So we're going to review two journal articles that are going to help answer this question. So I'm honored to be joined once again by Dr. Peter West Marcello and Dr. Tess Hannah Alette, And then we do have a special guest later in the episode. Uh, Gang, I feel like we've had some good quality time together.
0: Yeah, life's been good. Hey, team. Um, Yeah, indeed. We saw each other uh, and everybody else and our friends at the national meeting and our regional colorectal meeting. We were down in Tampa for ASCRS and then in Newport, Rhode Island for our New England Society of Colorectal Surgeons meeting. Tess, how, how did you like the meeting?
2: It was great. I was so happy to be able to see everybody in person. Really wonderful time.
0: Nice. So before
1: we get into our topic, I do want to give a shout out to the other colorectal surgery team in Montreal across the border. We're also contributing some awesome cases to Behind the Knife, and so I um, recently listened to their clinical challenges in colorectal surgery, discussing Lynch syndrome, and so that episode aired on May 5th, it's episode number 488, and so I definitely uh, recommend checking that out.
0: Well, well, hold on there, Cowboy John, Uh, while we're on the topic of awesome podcasts, uh, you're going to be one of the co-hosts of a new official podcast for ASCRS, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I sure am. So it's called Gut Check. Um, I was a little disappointed they didn't choose my suggested name. So my suggested podcast name was Where the Sun Always Shines. Uh, So maybe I'll save that name for another time. (laughs) Next time. Yeah, we had a a kickoff meeting last week, and we're going to be bringing you some really cool content in the coming months um, that can hopefully, you know, sort of supplement some of the colorectal specific content that you get from behind the knife. All right, let's get into our topic for today. Um, Tess, what are your thoughts about this topic?
2: I'm so glad we're going to be talking about this today. This was something as a fellow and now as an attending that I find really challenging. Uh, Every patient with Crohn's is so different. So first trying to figure out, one, do they need surgery? Then once you've made the determination, trying to figure out when it's going to be the safest window to do it in and how to optimize them can be really hard.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. And being early in my practice, it's 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 quite challenging. Um, so, you know, before we get into the papers, uh, we just want to make sure we're all on the same page with our listeners about some of the medications that we're going to be discussing in the paper. And Peter, you have a special way that you like to talk about this topic. So maybe you can give us that little intro for our, our listeners.
0: Yeah, I've learned over the years, you know, uh, the average patient doesn't know the GI anatomy and how rich of an immune system we have. I mean, if you think about it, our gut is really the outside world traveling through us, you know, out to our bottom. And there's a lot of bacteria. Hey, Tess, uh, what percentage of the weight of your poop is bacteria?
2: You have asked me this question quite a bit, 30%.
0: All right. That's about right. So you think it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's amazing we don't get sick. And that's because we have a rich immune system in our gut uh, and the body can recognize self itself and it knows surface markers. Um, And so when a bacteria tries to invade into the body, the body recognizes that as a foreigner because of the surface marker and kills it. When you develop IBD, I just say, your immune system normally is at a, you know, a thousand RPMs and now you're redlining. You know, when you're flaring and you're destroying the lining and the bacteria get in and you set up all this inflammation, You secrete fluid, you can't absorb fluid, you get pain. And then the medicines are basically we use to treat IBD, just try to keep the immune system back at idle, So it's not wham, redlining. And so the drugs go back and forth. I also kind of explained to them that the medicines we're using are the same meds that were used in uh, transplants. In the old days, if you got a kidney transplant, you went on prednisone and Imurant. You know, and nowadays we use cyclosporin to treat acute colitis. And so I think the goal for them to understand is that the medical therapies don't cure the disease. They just try to keep your immune system in check uh, so that you don't flare and destroy your own tissues. And I found that for most of them, that's helpful.
2: Yeah, I've also found this really useful and have used these analogies in my chat with patients. Um, I'm going to try to break down some of the medications for us, just again, to kind of lay a foundation for the listeners. Um, This could be a few lectures in and of itself, so I'm going to try to be quick. Um, Just a reminder to those of you tuning in, uh, if you follow along with us on the YouTube channel, you can see the slides to match our audio discussion. Big shout out to Dr. Kristen Farwell, one of our IBD gastroenterologists at Leahy, who shared some of her slides with us for this talk. She gives an awesome talk to the colorectal fellows every year that I I still remember. So first, you have uh, five ASA uh, topical anti-inflammatory medications typically used more in the treatment of UC. Then we jump to the steroids, which we have topical, enteral, parenteral formulations. Budesonide is a topical steroid with limited uh, systemic absorption, can be effective in the treatment of Crohn's disease. Systemic corticosteroids are anti-inflammatories, which we are all quite familiar with, and they're very effective but do have more adverse side effects and cannot be used long-term. Steroids systemically also pose a significant risk for postoperative infectious and wound complications. Then we move on to our immunomodulators, uh, such as 6MP, azathioprine, or methotrexate, which have an effect on activated T lymphocytes. And these meds are typically used for maintenance therapy, but not to induce remission. The last big class are the biologics, which we're going to be focusing on today. And these medications... It uh, can be a little bit confusing because you have the generic, the brand names, both get used clinically. These fall into three broad categories. You have your anti-tumor necrosis factor medications, such as infliximab, adalidomab, or two luzumab, <laughs> anti-integrin inhibitors, um, and then your anti-interleukin agents And then the anti-TNF agents basically bind um, to TNA alpha, which inhibits the signaling of the inflammation cascade, which basically down-regulates everything. Uh, These have been shown to induce remission in moderate to severe Crohn's disease. And the dosing of these medications can be quite variable in regarding to timing and frequencies because the half-life can be variable. Then lastly, the anti-integrin medications um, block the surface integrins, which prevent cells from adhering to the endothelium. This is straight back to first year of medical school, and that blocks the marginalization of leukocytes. Um, It has a very slow onset of action and can take about 12 weeks for induction to see an effect. The anti uh, uh, IL-1223 therapies um, were approved for Crohn's disease in 2016 and approved for UC in 2019. So these are some newer medications to the market. And the last class I'll just mention, again, new kids on the block, um, is the non-selective JAK um, inhibitors uh, that were approved in 2018 for moderate to severe UC. So I'm going to stop there because you've heard me talk enough about these uh, and I could keep on going for a while.
0: Sure, great, great test. And you know, these advances in and therapies have really sort of changed the natural history of Crohn's disease and the need for surgery in more recent cohorts compared to earlier decades, you know, has declined. Tess, what's the most common location for Crohn's? Iliocolic. Okay. And, and when you see somebody, what do you think the percentage of those patients that will need surgery throughout their lifetime?
2: About 60% of patients.
0: Yeah, I think that's about right. Uh, but, and, you know, as the old guy, when infliximab first was introduced, we thought, wow, you know, are we going to need to do surgery or, you know, are we are going to be out of business? But I think as we see today, and especially as we review these articles, that the biologics have benefited the IBD population, but they've not cured their disease. And we've saved some patients from surgery, certainly, uh, but we've also created these headaches about what to do uh, at surgery for patients on immunosuppressants, especially the biologics.
1: Peter, you sort of wonder if we're sort of at that crossroads right now with rectal cancer and some of the um, immunotherapy. Yeah. Wonder if that's going to be the same story. Could be. Well, so that was a wonderful introduction to a very complicated topic. Uh, So let's get back to the journals. Um, So, you know, a lot of studies that have attempted to study the effects of biologics on postoperative outcomes, you know, a lot of mixed results with the data. Um, You know, some surgeons will delay surgery for a period of time. Um, you have to think about the half life of medications, which can make things harder. Um, so, in any way, let's let's get test to kick us off with our first study, hot off the press.
2: Exactly. Thanks. I'm going to be talking about a study that was just published in the gastro- in gastroenterology. Recently presented at Digestive Disease Week. And the title of the study is a prospective cohort study to investigate the safety of preoperative tumor necrosis factor inhibitor exposure in patients with inflammatory bowel disease undergoing intra-abdominal surgery. And shortened is the Puccini trial.
0: Yeah, Italian. So <laughs>
2: Puccini. <laughs> Puccini trial. The primary aim of the study was to determine if pre-op exposure to anti-TNF therapy is an independent risk factor for post-op infectious complications within 30 days of surgery. Secondarily, they were interested in exploring the serum drug levels of anti-TNF medications with regards to post-op complications. Is a multi-center prospective observational study Patients with IBD undergoing abdominal surgery across 17 centers were included. Patients were adults diagnosed with IBD, either Crohn's disease, UC, or indeterminate colitis. Demographic information was obtained through patient questionnaire, data abstraction, and patient interview, and then data was also collected 30 days post-op. The current TNF inhibitor therapy was defined as use within 12 weeks of surgery, which is pretty standard across the literature when studying this. Serum drug levels were also collected, and two definitions were created based on serum drug levels to define exposure. In total, 947 patients were enrolled from 2014 to 2017. 382 had preoperative TNF exposure. And you can see in table one, this displays the patient demographics. About two-thirds of patients had Crohn's disease. Table two displays medication exposures. Notably, 41% of patients had used steroids within two weeks of surgery, and 40% of patients had been on TNF inhibitor prior to surgery, with the majority of these patients being on infliximab. Table 3 depicts operative details that they tracked, and a majority of the cases included in this uh, study were ileocolic resections, and they have broken these out um, in the table by Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. When looking at the patients who were exposed to the TNF inhibitors, there were no increased rates of post-infectious complications or surgical site infections as displayed here in figure one. Again, follow along on YouTube. This was consistent with using patient-reported TNF inhibitor use or the laboratory serum levels that they tracked. With univariate and multivariate analysis, TNF was not independently associated with increased infectious complications. I really like the visual abstract that they included in their study. It depicts the summary of findings nicely. Independent risk factors that they found that were associated with both SSI and post-op infectious complications were pre-op steroid use, current smoking, prior bowel resection, and diabetes. I think in summary, this is, you know, the largest prospective surgical cohort studying this topic. This study builds on a lot of prior literature that we're going to discuss shortly, but represents a very large number. Um, And in this population, 40% of these patients were exposed to TNF agents. Additionally, this um, provides additional definitions of TNF, uh, tumor necrosis factor exposure with the use of the serum drug levels. And doesn't depend solely on retrospective review of the chart or patient reporting that can be problematic. The study only looked at TNF agents, and as we talked about at the beginning, there's now many other classes of biologics that our patients are on and, you know, that we have to consider when we're uh, thinking about surgery. Additionally, the types of surgery are not all represented equally in this cohort, such as pouch creation, but overall, these findings are really important for taking care of IBD patients in regards to taking, you know, considering the timing of surgery. Uh, You know, do we really need to delay, and can we get patients to surgery sooner?
0: Yeah, Tess, that's a a nice overview. And um, a couple of points to note. Note that this is a prospective study, which is not randomized. There are lots of uh, biases that are inherent in the study, which they do disclose. But you got to look for them. Um, You know, overall, I think, what, 12% uh, complications, so infectious complications. So surgical wound protectors only used in two-thirds of the cases. You know, we use them a lot more than that. Uh, How does that affect things for Crohn's disease group? One high risk factor was different in the groups. A prior bowel resection, which we now think is a risk factor for anastomotic leakage, uh, was different in the no TNF group. Forty-eight had had a prior bowel resection compared to only thirty-seven percent in the yes TNF group. So the higher risk patients weren't on TNFs, but yet the results are the same. Well, how does that compare? For the UC patients, there were many more elective cases in the no TNF group. That was 86% versus 60% in the yes TNF group. Uh, f- uh, 40% of the cases in the yes TNF group uh, were semi-urgent or urgent cases. So that's, that, that's a higher risk group uh, that you have to note. Uh, pouch construction, okay, if we're going to look at leaks, because not everybody got an anastomosis, Pouch construction was 25, 29% in the no TNF, but only 16% in the yes. So while they show comparative results, you're doing more things in the group that, that, that you don't really realize. Um, and the one thing that doesn't get into any paper that you look at, that I call the surgeon X factor, it's the quality of the bowel that you're operating on. How does that bowel feel in your hands? Does it feel like butter? You know, is it going to rip and tear the mesentery? Or actually, will it hold suture in staples? Because that is really an, an important decision we make, the condition and the quality of the bowel that is never in any study. So uh, while I think it, it shows that if you make the right decisions, the use of biologics can be safe and you can have equal outcomes, but you, it really is a lot of decision-making. John, uh, back to you for a comment.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, great summary, Tess, and appreciate the the commentary, you know, Peter. I think for papers like this, it's always important to think about where does this fit in the filing cabinet, right? Do you remember Dr. Kleiman's filing cabinet reference, right? So three drawers, uh, you know, top drawer, walking around knowledge, middle drawer, okay, I have to sort of refer back to that one, and then bottom drawer, you know, throwing it out. So Tess, where do you put this one?
2: I'd put this in the uh, high tier, and you know, my takeaway from this study, uh, I think get paid, you know, reconfirms, uh, steroids and smoking are associated with wound complications. So try to get your patients off steroids if you can, and don't forget to talk to them about smoking cessation. Um, and then, you know, get people to surgery soon and you don't necessarily need to hold the, uh, biologics to delay.
1: Nice. All right. So let's walk us, uh, let's head over to our next article. All right. So this is going to be anti-TNF therapy is associated with an increased risk of postoperative morbidity after surgery for ileocolonic Crohn's disease. So this study sought to determine risk factors of morbidity after surgery for Crohn's disease, but looked specifically at Ileocolonic Crohn's disease and anti-TNF agents. So this is a prospective, multi-center, national cohort study. So this was conducted from 2013 to 2015, and so this was performed across 19 specialty centers in France. There were 529 patients who underwent surgery for ileocolic Crohn's disease. Uh, so about 58% of patients had stricturing Crohn's disease. Uh, 35% had perforating disease, and 7% had inflammatory disease. Um, 77% of patients had received at least one line of medical therapy for Crohn's. 24% had received an anti-TNF medication within three months of surgery. And for those patients, the median time interval from cessation to surgery was about 4.4 weeks. And they only had one patient in their cohort who had was on steroids and anti-TNF medications. So when we look at some of the surgeries, 72% of patients underwent an iliocolic resection, 73% were performed laparoscopically, uh, and 79% of patients had a primary anastomosis, and they had about 23% of patients who had a defunctionalizing stoma in their cohort. When we look at risk factors for stoma creation, uh, it was significantly more common in patients undergoing emergency surgery, had pre-op weight loss greater than 10%, had perforating or inflammatory type disease, recurrent smokers, or had albumin less than three. So basically all of the usual risk factors that we would think of. So now when we go over post-operative complications, there were no deaths in the cohort. Uh, uh, intra septic complications, including anastomotic leak, was 8.4%. And the rate of severe postoperative complications was about nine percent. So, looking at uh, univariate and multivariate analysis for postoperative morbidity, they found that predictors of post-op morbidity included being on anti-TNF agents within three months of surgery, hemoglobin less than ten, operative time greater than one hundred and eighty minutes, and recurrent Crohn's disease. And finally, the postoperative complication rate. Overall was 18% among the 262 patients who had no risk factors, 33% if you had one risk factor, and then 52% if you had two risk factors or more. So based on their findings, the authors conclude that preoperative anti-TNF therapy is associated with a higher risk of morbidity after surgery for iliocolonic Crohn's disease. Peter, thoughts?
0: Yeah, it's why again. I think it's a good study. I think the results are believable. You know, sort of real time what happened. But I want to point out uh, uh, what percentage of the patients were diverted following their ileocolic resection. How often should we divert following ileocolic resection? In this study, it was twenty three percent. Is that high? You know, when we counsel and consent patients for surgery here in the U.S., what do we say about the risk of an anastomotic leak and the need for a diversion? You know, when you make those interoperative decision making about the condition of the bowel, the abdomen, and the patient, I usually say if for a first time resection, the leak rate is roughly 5%. And I'll say I'll probably divert about 1 in 6 or 15%. In recent studies of ileocolic resection for Crohn's, the rate of diversion for Mayo Clinic was about 9%. Our study at Leahy was 13%. A Cleveland Clinic study was 22%. And a national NISQIP study was about 8% that variability likely relates to the severity of the disease that is thrown upon your door. In this study, it was 23% and they had a leak rate of 5% percent intra sepsis rate of 8%, both of which seem a little bit high, but those are the results. I think the real question comes if we resect an anastomosis and divert upstream, what happens to that upstream anastomosis later on? Can that area develop Crohn's because it's an area of an anastomosis I don't think we know the answer, but I know you, John, you had a recent patient who happened to need surgery because they got, uh, trouble from that area of the prior ileostomy closure site. So I'd say biologics are just one factor that a surgeon must consider when planning a primary anastomosis. And for me, uh, if it's less than eight to 12 weeks, the use of biologics is a factor that I do consider, uh, to this day, very strongly when counseling patients and when making decisions about surgery. John?
1: Well, great review of these two articles. Um, so really excited. We have a special guest for this session. So I'm going to invite one of our own faculty members to share some wisdom with us on this topic. So we have Dr. Angela Coonan, Dr. Angela H. Coonan joining us tonight. Um, so she is recently announced as the new program director for Leahy Colorectal Surgery Residency. Uh, so Dr. Coonan trained at um, uh, MGH for residency. She then did her colorectal fellowship at Leahy. She then went to Boston Medical Center for her first colorectal job where she actually enrolled patients in the Puccini trial. So we definitely wanna hear her perspective on that. So we're happy to have her with us tonight. Uh, So Angela, thoughts about these two articles? How do you manage biologic therapy in patients undergoing surgery? What's your your sense of all of this?
3: Thanks for having me, John and Tess. Um, So we did, yes, in my first job, um, we did enroll for that entire period in the Puccini trial. And I have to say that it's really critical to consider selection bias. As the surgeon, we made the determination about what operation the patient was having when they went to surgery and what we did with their medications beforehand. So I can tell you absolutely, if I was worried the patient was going to leak, they got a stoma. It was my first job, especially. So probably more people got stomas than they do now under my hands. Um, So, so that concern about selection bias is real. And it's, I think maybe Underestimated in the interpretation, of this paper a little bit how much that impacts how we interpret the data. Um, so, so um, another factor that that Peter brought up somewhat is that I think looking at the patients overall, in both the Crohn's patients and the ulcerative colitis patients, the patients who were exposed to TNF inhibitors had lower risk profiles, and so the fact that then we say they had equivalent infectious outcomes to me, says actually that they, they did worse, right? Because if, if they were lower risk, they should have had a lower infectious outcome afterwards. Um, but in, in in fact, in this study, um, the relative should equal infection rates. So in this slide, I think we really have to take a little bit of concern about the author's conclusion statement. What they say is that preoperative use of TNF inhibitors should not affect surgical decisions in most patients with IBD. And I think that's overstating a little bit. I really think a better conclusion is that Experienced surgeons do a relatively good job of risk stratifying patients with multiple morbidities, including use of TNF inhibitors in their selection for surgery. Here, here. So additionally, we have to be really careful about the, the ulcerative colitis patients. Uh, as Peter talked about, um, actually, th- some of these patients are undergoing urgent colectomy, and some of these patients are going undergoing their subsequent proctectomy with j creation when they're not having operations for active disease. So very different clinical scenarios. And and I think it's basically impossible to compare. It's it's apples to oranges when you're looking at the ulcerative colitis patients. So really be careful in looking at those. Um, Switching over to the GetAIDS study, one of the things that I think they showed really nicely and and presented a concept of um, is the the idea that risk of postoperative complications increased significantly according to the number of risk factors in an individual patient. And this is really how I make decisions about diversion when operating on ileocolic, ileocolic Crohn's disease. Um, so the Red Sox are playing right now as we're recording this. So I'm going to call this the three strikes or out rule. Patients get one strike for each major risk factor uh, for an leak, including I count basically one strike per prior ileocolic resection, uh, steroid use, smoking malnutrition, obstruction, obesity, and biologic use, and, and another number of other factors at times. So typically for me, three strikes or sometimes even two, and you're getting a stoma. And in getting these patients through the operation safely, we have to really then think about how uh, what we can do to decrease postoperative recurrence rates down the road. This is a bit of another topic, but, but we have to think about um, during the operation and also in the postoperative period, about 50% of patients who undergo ileocolic resection will need another operation within 10 years Biologic therapy has been shown to decrease the incidence of endoscopic recurrence, but not as convincingly decreasing clinical recurrence rates and need for surgery. So there's a lot of discussion for another time about possible anastomotic techniques that might decrease recurrence rates, as well as the impact of end ileostomy versus anastomosis with ileostomy on recurrence rates. Uh, One other really important uh, point from the Getting trial is that all patients were reviewed in a multidisciplinary IBD conference. Um, And I thought it was interesting that they they include this as a requirement in, um, in the IBD centers in France. One of the nice things that we do here at Leahy is to have a regular multidisciplinary IBD conference. It's sort of a tumor board style model for discussing complex patients with IBD. We have surgery, GI, radiology, and pathology present. And this is really extremely helpful to get multiple perspectives and plan a patient's future course with a multi-pronged approach, whether that's uh, continued medical therapy or surgery, and and then along with that, what operation?
0: Hey, Alessa, Hey, Tess. Do do they have a, a similar conference for you guys at this stage?
2: Um, we do have some uh, IBD conference. It's not as frequent. Right. So uh, maybe an
0: op- opportunity to move forward, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of this session on general review and colorectal surgery. So let's wrap it up, Leahy team. Tess, you know the deal. You want to get us started?
2: Yeah. All right. Tess's teaching points. Get patients off steroids if you can. Don't forget smoking cessation and then be thoughtful and thorough in your pre-op planning, but don't delay more than needed.
0: Love it. Peter? All right. My must knows. The surgeon's assessment of the bowel introp as that X factor, which will never come out in a study. And while diversion may offer immediate benefits after colic resection, what happens in, in the long term to that site? we got to figure that out.
1: Nice. All right. So, Angela, you're up. Kunin's knowledge. What do you got for us?
3: Take an issue with your soft K there. We have to work on
1: that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, first um uh, operate before, before catastrophe strikes if you can. Do not delay surgery to taper biologics and, and risk um, proceeding to either perforation or frank obstruction. And then also think carefully about your risk assessment before uh, for leak uh, before surgery. Always reserve the right to upgrade your plan to make a stoma. But if your preoperative risk assessment suggests you should make a stoma, you probably sh- should not make an intra-op decision to skip that stoma.
0: All right. And John, let's wrap it up with Abelson's approach.
1: Love it. Yeah. So I and and I share a little bit of that with with Angela is that if a patient needs surgery, they need surgery. Right. So don't delay the surgery just because they're taking biologic medication. And, you know, I'm early in my career. So I'm talking about stomas with everybody. Basically, everybody's getting stoma marked um, because you never know what happens when you get in the OR. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up our fourth session. And so again, if you like diving into the weeds, consider joining us Sunday evenings for our colorectal surgery virtual education series. So we've been partnering with Behind the Knife and now Surgeon for that series as well. You can find those lectures on uh, Behind the Knife's website or on Surgeon. Uh, You can also check out our show notes for some details. Uh, We'll be back with you in November for clinical challenges in small bowel stricture in Crohn's disease. And so if you enjoyed this session, please take a minute or two out of your hectic day to leave us a review. And as Behind the Knife says, team, until the next time, dominate,
0: dominate the, day.
2: the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindtheknife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.